And I have a question, and it's an overarching question this morning, okay? We are in, this morning, a Christian church, correct? We believe at Christian Life Fellowship that Jesus, you can read our uh, fundamental truths, you can read our statement of faith, you can go online and see our belief, but we have a belief that Jesus Christ was God, but he was fully man, and we believe that the Bible is the infallible word of God. Can we all agree that in today's society, those truths and those beliefs are coming under attack? Can anybody agree that? I mean, you watch the news, you read the paper, you even read Facebook, and you can see that morality in the United States today is coming down to what I choose is right and wrong versus what anybody else says is right and wrong. If you feel it, it must be true for you. There is no absolute truth. It's what I feel, it's what I believe. And this is very much the situation that the Colossian church was in, which we'll get into more. I was listening to a sermon uh, probably several months ago now, and it was called The Attack on Genesis. And he said something in there that really challenged me, and I really want to enlighten you this morning on this idea. 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul wrote this. He said, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceives Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. And what the sermon asked was one simple question. What is the great deception that Satan tries to use? How did he deceive Eve? And that simple question is the exact same question that is plaguing our society today. And you can read it in Genesis 3.1, and it's basically this. Did God really say blank? Did God really say don't eat this tree? Did God really say this or that? And how many things in our society today, absolute truth, what the word of God outlines is right and wrong, how many things in our society today is starting to question, did God really say this? Did God really say homosexuality was this? Did God really say drugs were bad? Did God really say this or that about marriage? Did God really say this? And it's that lie that has plagued creation from the Garden of Eden. We want to look at how the morality in America today is being impacted and being attacked. Well, guess what? It's been attacked since the Garden of Eden. This is not a new thing. Like, this is something that has been going on since the creation of humanity. So it's not a new thing. The uh, why is it important, though? There's a word, if you've never heard it, it's called apologetics. Has anybody ever heard of apologetics? Does anybody know what it means? Now you do. <laughs> apologetics is the branch of theology concerning with the defense or proof of Christianity. Really, why you believe what you believe. And if you're taking notes, write this across the top of your paper. Why do I believe what I believe? Why do I believe what I believe? Because the truth of the matter is, why you have to come into the place where you have an assurance of you believe something, but you need to know even more so why you believe what you believe. Because at the end of the day, if you believe in something, and all of a sudden your life is on the line, <laughs> your belief is going to become in question. You're either going to fully believe it or fully not. Like when you step out, has anybody heard of, seen the Sears, what well, used to be the Sears Tower, I don't even know what it's called anymore, in uh, Chicago, where they have these now uh, crisp, the clear platforms 
made out of plexiglass that are, extend beyond the edge of the building. So you can literally step out into this box and see 110 floors down. You're standing over nothing but a clear sheet of plexiglass. Your faith has to be really good in that plexiglass to put your life, literally step out there and look straight down 110 floors to the ground. Anybody want to No, no, I'm not good. But however, that's faith. Like you have faith in that plexiglass because you're literally putting your life on the line for that. Do we have that same conviction about what we believe in Christ? Because the day is coming in America where you're going to have to have such a belief that you will stand in the face of a boss that is threatening your job or a government that's threatening prison because it's happening all over the world. It's happened throughout humanity. Well, you have to know why you believe what you believe. What does the Bible say about this? 1 Peter 3, 14 through 16. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always, if you have, I always tell people this, if you have a Bible and you're okay marking it, I always put that little disclaimer, underline, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who will revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, extort, and greet, or in great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. I want you to see if... Uh, Morality in this country kind of fits into this next little part. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teacher in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, being sober in all things, endure hardship. Do the work of the evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. We have to know why we believe what we believe. The, continue, the world will continue to shove their beliefs down your throat. Why? Because we have an enemy. He's called the devil. He's there to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his entire created existence right now. He was created for more, but now his sole purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. And the best way to do that is to deceive you into thinking you're living a life for God when you're living a life for yourself. He wraps truth around lies. Anybody who's been into any type of addiction understands this concept. There's a little bit of good and all of a sudden you're wrapped in a complete life of guilt and misery and shame for that one little bit of truth behind it that feels good at the moment. Theology is the same way. Your belief system is the same way. The enemy loves to wrap lies or wraps truth around lies. And deceive. I want you to have a clear picture this morning. And I posted these stats on Facebook. I want you to have a clear picture of the uh, America that you live in today. Barna Research Group, which is a very well-known, very respected research company, uh, did studies on the Word of God, belief about the Bible, and belief about Jesus. Okay? And I want, you to, I want to go over these. First of all, this is the overarching stat that I want you to keep in mind. Of all the adults, 
okay? There's four age groups. You have elders, which were born before 1964. You have boomers, born from 64 to 70. I forget the state. Uh, and you have Generation Xers, born in mid-70s all the way up till 1984. Then you have millennials, which were born from 1984 into the year 2000 to 2002. Four age groups that they researched in this, in this study, okay? So all these stats are broken down into this, and they researched all adults. Does anybody want to guess how many of all the thousands of adults, what percentage of people in America claim to be Christians? How many guess? 46, I've got 70. 78% of all adults say they are Christians. Okay? Now, as we go through these other steps, remember that one. Because of these people, all of these stats also come from the same people who 78% said they're Christians. Of all adults, only 56% believe Jesus was God. Broken down by uh, percentage by age. Elders, 62%. Boomers, 58%. Generation Xers, 55%. Millennials, 48 why do I say that? I want you to understand that the younger the generation is, that this generation coming up, my age, only 48% believe Jesus was God. Versus elders believe 62%. What does that tell you? That means less and less and less and less and less adults are believing Jesus is God. Of all adults, only 52% believe Jesus committed a sin, or excuse me, of all adults, 52% of adults believe Jesus committed a sin while on earth. And only 31% of those strongly disagreed. 78% of people said they were Christians, and yet only 31% strongly disagreed that he sinned. Only 24% of millennials strongly disagreed, and 56% of millennials believe he sinned. 62% of all adults have made a personal commitment to Jesus. 62 minus 78 equals 16%. So 16% say they are Christians but have not made a commitment to Jesus. By generation, elders, 71%. Boomers, 65 Generation Xers, 59 And millennials, 46%. 37% of those who have made a personal commitment to Jesus believe they can get to heaven by a different way than through a relationship with Jesus. That's not of all people. That's 37% of the ones who said they made a commitment to Jesus. Three out of four. So 75% of adults believe being religiously extreme is a threat to society. And you may want to think, well, yes, the whole idea of Islam being extremist, I get it. But what better way? I mean, if you read the Bible, it's pretty clear that Christ tells us to be extreme, to sell out for our faith. What better way to destroy to attempt to destroy Christianity than to group Christianity in with, okay, so three out of four. Two in five millennials, so my generation, two in five millennials say church is not important because they can find God elsewhere. 30% of millennials believe the Bible has too little influence on society. That means 70% believe the Bible does not. It's just fine without it. 
19% of Americans are skeptical or agnostic towards the Bible. They believe that the Bible is just another book of teachings written by men that contains story and advice. And this is the last stat that I want you to get to you. Of the people who were researched for this, I want you to see this stat. Of those who believe truth is relative, in other words, truth is up in your hands. There is no absolutes. 39% of elders, 41% of boomers, 44% of Generation Xers, and 51% of millennials. So the majority of people born between 1984 and the year 2000 believe truth is completely relative and it's up to you to determine what truth is. Where do you think this country's going in those kind of stats? So in just four generations, we go from 39% to 51% believe truth is relative. Guys, we are in a losing battle in America, raising up the next generation to believe the authority of Christ. We have to understand this battle is going, has been going on since the creation of the world. The church at Colossae was going through it. Do you under, um, has anybody heard of the city called Detroit? Does anybody know why Detroit grew up so much? Because it was huge before the auto industry. Does anybody know why Detroit was so huge? It was one of the number one hotspots for fur trading in the 1700s and 1800s and before. Because it was an intersection between Canada and the United States. It was just a hotspot where all these trade routes would go through. And so Detroit became a huge city because of the trade routes. Okay, That's what Colossae was in that day. It was a hot spot for all different cultures, all different people. You go to Detroit, it is a bubbling cauldron of different societies, different belief systems, different ethnicities. It's just crazy because it's been an intersection of so many trade routes for so long. That's the way Colossae was. There were so many different uh, trade routes coming into this one place that the Christians were being influenced just how we are today by our media, that there are other ways, there are other authorities, there are other things that give truth relative. So, this morning, we are going to talk about the authority of Christ. And I only have 25 more pages of notes, so we're good. Um, that was supposed to be funny. If you have your Bible this morning, I want you to pull it out and turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to continue the series this morning on the incomparable Christ, or the uncomparable Christ, however you want to pronounce it. And we're going to get in, dig into what Paul wrote about the authority of Christ to the church at Colossae that was being inundated by all sides by the media of that day, which looked eerily similar to the media today. So, now that I have Pastor Mark's Bible, hopefully Colossians is in here. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. If you have your Bible, read along, or it should be up here. It says this, he is, the, speaking of Christ, says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For, he, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by God and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body and the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among all the dead, 
so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether the things on earth or the things in heaven, by making peace through his blood and shedding on the cross. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. And I pray this morning that we will leave here, God, more challenged and more convinced that you are the ultimate authority on good, on evil, on what's right and what's wrong, that you have all authority on earth. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's a few truths, but an overarching uh, verse of all of them is this, John 14, 6. Does anybody know what John 14, 6 is? Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the light. No man comes to the Father but through me. That's one to memorize. But I love the way Paul breaks this down. And we're going to get into some apologetics this morning. So why I said notebook and pen, because there's going to be a lot of verses, there's going to be a lot of ideas and thoughts and word studies, because I want you to get a real clear picture on why Jesus Christ is the authority for us, period. That's why we can hold on to him. So let's dig into it. Verse 15 through 17, I want to read it again and really pay attention to a few words said, he is the image, image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. How many times did he say all, talking about Christ? He wants you to understand, he is everything, he is all things. The words used for image is used in a way where Paul literally is saying he is a prototype. There is nothing like him. When you do a word study on it, I have no idea how to pronounce the word. I want to say it's econ, econ, for the word image here. John can correct me later. It said, means that which resembles an object which represents it. It always assumes a prototype, not merely what it resembles, but which it is drawn. In other words, it is literally drawn from God. And he is a clear representation of God. He's not just an image. He wasn't just a manifestation. He was truly fully God and fully man. And God is literally saying he is a prototype. There's none like him. I draw him from myself to give you an image of who I am as God in a human form so you can better understand who I am. Does that make any sense? I'm sorry. I'm going to try to make it as clear as I can this morning. But I want you to get a full understanding of what, how powerful this passage can be. The firstborn of all creation it's referring to is how Jesus was the first to be resurrected under the new covenant into an eternal body. So a lot of people love to point to this verse and argue that Jesus was a created being in creation. That's not what God is saying. God is saying he was the first to be created, the first to be resurrected. He was the first to be raised into his eternal body into his eternal glory. We have Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, right? We read about different people being raised from the dead, but they were raised back into their sinful condition. It is Jesus was the first to be dead and then resurrected into the eternal promised form. Does that make any sense? So when it's talking about the firstborn, that's what it's talking about. It's the first to be recreated into the image of God. All right. Philippians 2, 6 through 8 says, Who, although he, speaking of Christ again, existed in the form of God, did not regard equally with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, 
taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He was the first to be fulfilled with the promise that each of us hold on to. Each of us hold on to a promise of eternity with God, right? Like that's our ultimate goal is eternity with God. It's not here. I mean, how depressing would it be, literally, if this is all we have to look forward to? This. Don't get me wrong. When Christ came into my life, I found fulfillment. I found peace. I found joy. I have all of those things. But if this life is all I have, hold all the whole... If, if, <laughs> Y'all like that, didn't you? That's professional. I went to college to learn that. If, if this life is all we have to hold on to, like seriously, how depressing would it be to come into this room? But it's not. We have a promise of eternity with Christ, and Christ was the firstborn, the one to be fulfilled into that promise. Why is that important? Because it gives us hope. We have hope that we have eternity with God because Jesus came down, was resurrected into that promise. Does that make any sense? Am I totally losing? I hope I'm not losing anybody. I'll have all these notes so you can, if I'm totally messed with your head. Get with me later and I'll give you my notes. It all began with him. John 1.1. 1, 1. Stevie, read John 1.1. 1, 1. Sean, read John 1.1. 1, 1. Hey, Sean. The word word there was Jesus. So in the beginning was the word. Who is Jesus? So in the beginning was and the word or Jesus was and the word was God. Right? Jesus was God. Let's go back to the statistics real quick. <clears throat> Percentage. Only 56% believe Jesus was God and 78% believe themselves as Christians. Does anybody find a problem with that? And we wonder why we're being laughed at and our churches are shrinking. Not this one, thank God. If you're here visiting with us this morning, I'm sorry, I promise Mark will be back next week. Um, but it all begins with Christ. Everything comes down to it all about Jesus. The promise we hold on to, Jesus. Eternity, Jesus. Creation, Jesus. It has his fingerprints. This is his story. Everything. Do you, I, just, I just think it's hilarious that the fact the word history is his story. I, just, I know people have played off of that, but I just don't think that kind of thing is a coincidence. This life, humanity itself, is about Jesus. It all, everything is wrapped up in that. All things have been created in him. All right, go back to this verse with me. And it says, um, verse, I want to say 16. Verse 16, for by him all things were, what does it say? Created, right? For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. In English, that's one word, right? Well, in Greek, it's not. It's two separate words, two different words. And I want to enlighten you this morning on those two different words. Don't ask me how to pronounce the two words, because I don't. Ask John after church. He can tell you. But the first thing, all things by him were created. That word created is a founding, i.e., of a city, 
coloniza colonization of a hab habitable place, that. Creation in a past tense, the sum of what was created. I love the fact that it said the sum of what was created. So God created all things. By him, all things were created. Everything was created by God. Some people argue that Jesus was a manifestation of God. Or Jesus was a man, God indwelt. No, all things were created by Jesus. So God, Jesus is part of God. You have to understand that, first of all. Jesus was God. He wasn't just a man. He was God because all things were created by him. Past tense. Second of all, what's the second created? All things have be, been created for him and by him. Why is this different? The second is to possess. In the New Testament, this means to create, to produce from nothing. or to I love this. To create and form, in a spiritual sense, regeneration or renewal. Well, why is that important? Well, we're going to learn later on. God, when Jesus came down on the cross, he reconciled us to him, right? He made us new creations. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed. Behold, all things are made new. So not only did Christ create all things, all of creation, but he also created you spiritually renewed. Why? For him. He made you new. He saved you. He came down and literally gave his life, shed his blood, was resurrected after three days. Why? It's not about you. It's about him. We want to make this whole Christianity thing about us. I received Christ. I'm getting ahead. He saved you for himself. Because he loves you. So all things were created. And he's making all things new for himself. Because he loves you. Christ is the founder of the world. He is the creator, and it was by his power and authority all things have been created. It is only through Christ our salvation and regeneration is. We are dead without Christ. I already said John 14, 6. Colossians, here's some verses for you. Colossians 1, 13 through 14. Write these verses down. For he rescued us from the dom domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That is through Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.30 But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption by Christ. We are made in Christ. Galatians 3.13-14 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit, of, of the Spirit through faith. One other one, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, the all things have become New. God makes all things new. Some of you guys need to hear that this morning. Because the truth of the matter is, when we come to Christ, He doesn't just wipe away our sin a little bit. He makes you new. 
He created all of creation, but when you come to Christ, when you submit to the authority of God, when you lay your selfishness and sin at the feet of the cross and accept the forgiveness that God has already paid for, he makes you new. We're the ones that hold on to the past guilt and sin and shame and selfishness and pride. We do that, not him, because he makes all things new. New. What does new mean? New. Not remade. It doesn't mean he ordered a kit and rebuilt your transmission. He didn't use the old parts. He made you new. Would you rather have a rebuilt transmission or a new one? You're made new. Sorry. I don't know how that came from. All right, point two from this verse, verse 18 and 19. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from all among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. I love the fact that he, how many times does he say all, everything, in everything, Christ? Everything. So as I was doing my study, I found an excerpt um, in a uh, commentary that I want to read you. Out of some hot coffee, man. Herbert Carson writes this, and we're going to uh, take this apart here in a minute, but I want you to listen to this closely. He says, Here we have a picture of Christ's relationship to the church, already made familiar by Paul's usage in 1 Corinthians 12.12 and Romans 12.5. As head of the church, he is, I love this word, he is in an organic relationship, for the church is shares his very life as the limbs share a common life with the head. He is further the directing and controlling power to which the limbs must submit. Indeed, that which gives them their unity as a body and enables them to function purposeful is the control of the head. So true unity and effective endeavor in the body of Christ are due not to a reorganization of the members, but to a renewed obedience of the divine head. I love this, so let's unpack it a little bit. First truth to get from this little bit. Christ is the authority of the church. Many times today, churches are built on the fame of a pastor or the fame of a program. Programs are great getting people in the doors, but the truth of the matter is, Christ is where the authority comes from. We don't have a right to twist theology and twist the word of God to make a congregation feel welcomed and accepted. Christ is the authority. He created all things. All things come from him. So when it comes to a church, God, Christ is the authority on our belief system. One of the reasons I love Pastor Mark so much is he emphasizes over and over and over and over and over again, Jesus, it's all about Jesus. And I challenge you, if you ever, ever hear anything preached from this pulpit, at this church, from me, John, Mark, anybody that counteracts what Jesus Christ said, throw it away. Throw it away. We may have made a mistake saying something. Bring it back to the word of God. Jesus Christ has all authority, period. Colossians 1 or 1.18. Number two, I love this. Jesus Christ is the organic life to the church. Jesus Christ is living. Do we understand that? He was raised from the dead. He is a living, active part of our lives and a living and active part of our church body. He is the life behind the church, not the pastor. Jesus should be the one calling the shots, giving life, breathing life into a church. 
So many times, I'm telling you, it's, it breaks my heart to see churches rallying around a pastor rather than rallying around a purpose of spreading Jesus. It's about building a community. It's, I'm not calling any person out. But I talk to so many Christians today that they love their pastor, but they don't love Jesus. Jesus is the one that should be directing a church. And there's a lot of great churches that are, that are bringing people. But what's the fruit of it? Anything we do as a body, and I'm telling you this from a church staff perspective, when we get together as a church staff, whether we talk about outreaches, whether we talk about messages, whether we talk about ministry, everything is about spreading Jesus. Everything. Love Clear is about Jesus. Wednesday night, love, sex, and dating is about Jesus. It's about reflecting Jesus. Everything in this church has to do with Jesus. Why? Because he is the head. Everything which should be flowing out of Jesus. Before we start throwing out agendas in our church, time, first, I'm just going to, 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body... Though they are many, are one body, so also in Christ. It seems like you cannot turn on the news without somebody talking about racial depravity and discrimination and racism and this and that. This place should have nothing to do with that. If you have an issue with somebody of a different race, nationality, or something else right... According to this, you need to get your heart right. Okay? If you see a color of a skin or a nationality or something else, it's your problem. It's not God's. So get your heart right. Third, unity in the body comes when we submit to the head Christ in word, actions, and attitudes. You know, I... John can back me up. There's a lot of dissension. There's a lot of issues in church today. There are church splits. There are church aggravations. There are church crap going on all the time. What are you fighting for when you walk into the building? You personally. When you come into the building, what's your mindset? Because the truth of the matter is, we are here to fulfill the purposes of God. Right? Like, that's why we're here. So if Christ is the head, he's the one directing the body. If you come in and you decide to do your own thing, you come in for your own selfish purposes, you do not care about anything else, and you're focused on what you can get out of church rather than turning around blessing other people and fulfilling the purposes of God, let me ask you a question. What would happen if I just had a right arm doing this all the time? Just going crazy. Could I, I could probably run a marathon. I could probably do my work. I could learn to be left-handed if I had an issue with my right arm that just, it wouldn't control itself. Like, it's just controlling itself. I had no control of my right arm. It's just going crazy all over, flopping all over the place. Some people know this. Uh, I know somebody personally who has Huntington's disease where your body literally starts to lose control of itself. When you start to lose control of a body part, it's going to hinder the effectiveness of the entire body. You're not going to have the same 40 time. You, if you run a 4-4-40 when your body's perfect and you have limbs flying around, you can't control your legs, are you going to be able to run a 4-4-40? No, because it's going to affect the effectiveness of your entire body. That's what happens when we come into churches and we, we start focusing on our agendas, our needs, and our desires. 
rather than fulfilling the purposes God has laid out. If you're a part of CLF, your purpose of being here is to fulfill the purpose of CLF. If you don't know that. If God has called you to this body under the authority of that pastor, you are to submit under that authority, that purpose, and that calling, which is to fulfill the vision and purpose of Christian Life Fellowship, not your own personal desires. My hand's close to home. Sorry, visitors. I'm sorry. This is just truth of the word. So what is your purpose of coming in here? Truth of the matter is, Christ is the head. He's the director. He is what everything is about. So when we come in here, when we're part of this body, we should be looking. How can I fulfill those desires? Michelle and I had a conversation this week of things that God is stirring in her. And she was asking me questions. I said, just go for it. If God's laid something on your heart, go for it. Is there a need? Just go for it. Well, what about this and that? Just do it. If God has laid something on your heart to fulfill his purposes and his desires, just go for it. Quit fearing. Quit trying to worry about it. Just go. Do something. Use your life for God's glory and to affect his purposes and his kingdom because Christ is the head. He has an organic living relationship and active with us. Okay, last one, I promise. Actually, let me hit one verse. John 13, 34, and 35 says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that, also lo or that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. And if you have love for one another, are you loving each other? Can the world see Christ through how you love the people in this room? How are you talking about them behind your back? How are you treating them on Sunday mornings? How are you thinking about them on Wednesday nights? How are you treating them on Facebook? How are you thinking about them? Because it's not just an action. It's about your thought pattern. It's about your attitude. If you're harboring constant aggravation about the other person, it's going to come out. Come on. The, Christ, the world will see Christ in how we treat each other. We have to love each other. But that only comes through getting our life from the head, which is Christ. Last thing. I only got 12 pages of notes left. We're good. Man, y'all really aren't laughing anymore. This is, I got to get moving, man. All right. Verse 20. Jesus Christ is the only way to be reconciled with God. Sean, read it. Read verse 20 right there. Anybody see the all things again? The fullness is letting you know that Jesus was not just a manifestation. He was actually the fullness of God and man. He was both all God and all man. A couple of truths we're going to pull from this and we're going to be done. First of all, through him to reconcile all things to himself. He created all things and he reconciles all things to himself. We are not the ones who accept Christ. We just stop rejecting him. We don't have power over salvation to save ourselves. I think sometimes we get this twisted. I'm reading a book right now. If you really want to kick in the pants, read Follow Me by David Platt. It will mess you up. Because he just really hammers home a point that salvation is not from us. Yes, we have to believe. 
1 John talks about if we believe in our hearts that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. I get that. But at the same time, where does that salvation come from? Because it doesn't come from us. Well, I've made a decision to follow Christ. Where does that salvation come from, though? I think sometimes we get so wrapped up in thinking that I prayed a prayer, we get it us focused again. I made a decision to follow Christ. Really? Because what does that mean? That means you killed your selfishness and your pride. And yet the whole statement is, I've done something. I've accepted Christ. I've done this. What it's, man, Christ saved me. Christ forgave my sins. Christ died for me. He gave me a promise of eternity. It's about Him. He reconciles everything. And I just challenge you, how many things in your Christian walk, when you spend time with Jesus, whether it's journaling, whether it's reading the Bible, whether it's praying, how many things in that time are about you, and how much of the time is it about Him? When the disciples came to Jesus and He said, Lord, teach us how to pray, what is the first thing that Jesus says? Does anybody know the Lord's Prayer? Keep going. Let's say that one more time. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. So the whole first half of the verse, he talks about God four times. How many times did he say, me or I? So in our personal walk with Christ, how many times does it start and end with I, rather than start and ending with him? He is the one that saves us. He is the one that reconciles us. He is the one that is all about. It has to come down to him. Matthew 19, 25 and 26. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Who then, who can be saved? And what does Christ say? Looking at him, Jesus said, With people, this is impossible. We want to use this verse when it starts talking about accomplishing things or owning things. And Christ is saying, with men, salvation is impossible. Salvation is impossible with men. That's what this verse is about. And yet, what does he say? With God, all things are possible. All things are possible. Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have men, or for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace, the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Are we getting a theme here of all, everything is about Jesus? Everything is through Jesus? Everything was created by Jesus. We have peace with God through the blood of Christ only. John 14.6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Hebrews 7, 24 through 27. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently, and therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was 
fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. 2 Timothy 1.9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted in us Christ Jesus from all eternity. Why am I reading all these passages? Because you have to understand the word of God is so crystal clear that salvation only comes through a relationship through Jesus Christ, which was provided by Jesus Christ, not by our prayers. It's not by our prayers or our works that we find salvation. It's only through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you have, do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy, inexpressibly and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Philippians 2, 5-11, Having this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equally with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Praise God. It's about Jesus. So question, why do you believe what you believe? Do you believe because you pray to prayer you're saved? believe Jesus saved you. What does reconciliation mean? It is the restoration of a relationship of peace which has been disturbed. A relationship at peace that has been disturbed. It was disturbed in the Garden of Eden when our enemy, the devil, asked a simple question. Did God really say so I challenge you this morning, when you start looking at truth, when you get on Facebook, when you start listening to the news, when you start forming opinions on what you think you believe and why you believe it, come back to the Word of God. It has to be about Jesus. Because I'm telling you, in the last days, guys, you will be held accountable. You're going to be questioned. You're going to be threatened. Does anybody need to remind? I'm going to read 1 Timothy again, or 2 Timothy 4. you got to understand, first of all, 2 Timothy was the last letter Paul ever wrote. So this is right before Paul breathed his last breath. This is the last letter he wrote to his best disciple. He said, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify 
Christ as the Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. That's 1 Peter. 2 Timothy 4. I solemnly, and I pray this over you this morning, because wherever you are with God, I don't know, and I'm sorry there's, there's not a huge altar call, but I really want you to just to take this morning and seriously do an introspection into yourself. You go, do I know why I believe? If I go to work tomorrow and they ask me, why do you believe in Jesus? Can you give an account? Can you tell them why? Can you point to the word of God and say, this is why? Because I just gave you a whole bunch of ammunition why. Hopefully you took notes on it. But this is what I'm going to charge you with this morning as we're shutting down, we're closing down, we're going home, as we're beginning to go out into the marketplace and fulfill the path that God has laid before us. This is what I want to charge you. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living, and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Preach the word. Preach the word in your actions. Preach the word in your attitudes. Preach the word in your mindset, in your thinking. Preach the word to your kids. Preach the word to your spouse. Preach the word to your coworkers. Preach the word to your boss. You do that by the respect that you have, by the love you show one another. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Be ready. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready to give an account for why you believe what you believe? Because it will happen and you're going to need to. Reprove, rebuke, extort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myth. But you be sober in all things. Endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Stand with me this morning. I know this has been deep. I know there's been a lot to take in. And I don't apologize for it. Because you need to know why you believe what you believe. You need to be able to give account. And I hope, if nothing else this morning, you understand what Paul outlined in Colossians is that Jesus Christ is the authority on everything. Everything comes back to Christ. And I charge you this morning, know why you believe what you believe. Be ready to give an account. Because I'm telling you, there's coming a day in America that you're going to endure. Be ready. I can tell you, this place, this body, this church can prepare you. This community can prepare you. If you're teachable, if you come in here ready to learn, ready to give, not prideful, not selfish, but serving, teachable, honest, and ready to go. One of the things I love about Sean, why do I keep calling on him? Because he's one of the hungriest people I know in my entire life to know the intimacy and the knowledge of God. He wants to know why he believes. Do you have a hunger in your time to know Christ like never before? Dig into his word. Take the outline. Take the notes from today. I'll post them on Facebook. I'll post them online. Take them. Dig in. Know why you believe what you believe. Write little note cards to yourself. Place them all over your house. Put them on the mirror. Put them in your car. Put them on the door of your car so that every time before you walk into your car and every time you get out, you're looking. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Get it inside. 